I don't know if this is a product of being in teen ministry for a while or if it's just an awkward relational trait that I have. For those of you that know me, you know that I've got several. My wife giggled before I finished that sentence. It is what it is. But I've got a, a list of back pocket icebreaker questions if I ever do need to break the ice in a conversation. And one of my favorite ones is one I got from a friend in college. He would go up to anyone, he was that kind of person, and ask them this question. If you could have anything come out of your belly button, pain-free, every time you sneezed, what would it be? I've heard some great answers to that question. I'd be happy to talk to you about those answers some other time. But this morning, that question has nothing to do with my sermon. So we won't stew in that one too long. But one of my other questions, and I think I got this one from my wife, is do you prefer to go to the mountains or the beach? I heard a beach, I heard a mountains, that's awesome. Can we do it by a show of raise of hands? Uh, who prefers the mountains? All right, who prefers the beach? There were more beach, who prefers just vacation in general and just is happy? <laughs> How many days, Mike Walker? 48. <laughs> oh, um, I'm personally a beach fan, but we do take a hiking trip every year and we love it about wilderness. We'll count that with uh, mountains, but I guess there is different kinds. <laughs> well, as an icebreaker, I hope that you looked around and saw who your neighbors were raising your hands for and all that, and you've got a nice icebreaker after the service. So you're welcome for that conversation starter. This past week, I was talking with someone who had just returned from a family hiking trip out at Yosemite National Park in, um, in California. He had taken his family out there to do some hiking and see the gorgeous waterfalls. And his kids were younger, so it was the first time they had ever experienced anything like that. And he was telling me how satisfying it was to do the day-long hike up the waterfall and then to have a meal where you could just look out for miles and miles. You have the amazement and the proudness of knowing, I accomplished this goal to get up here after this meal, I have to walk back down. Um, but it's in those kinds of moments where we take pictures. But we all know that after the vacation's over and we look back on those pictures, they never do them justice, right? The moment is great, but that, that landscape can't quite be pictured fully in a photograph. So here's a couple pictures for both mountain and beach lovers that I have taken. And these are of crazy, beautiful areas in the world. Uh, this one was taken in Virginia. I can't remember what park it was. You can ask my wife later. What was it? Shenandoah, Shenandoah uh, National Park. Beautiful, beautiful hike. Um, this one was taken in Manuel Antonio in Costa Rica. I believe it was definitely Costa Rica. Amazing spots, gorgeous locations but the pictures just can't quite capture the true beauty. Even mentally, I try to close my eyes and take myself back there and remember what they truly looked like, but I really should have had a professional take my mental pictures for me. Would have been great. But even with the amazement drop-off in these pictures, it's still hard not to see landscapes like this and just think, wow, God, is incredible. 
It's with this kind of thought that it's time for our scripture this morning. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 8 as we continue our summer in the Psalms. A fun fact about this passage is that it was the first biblical text to reach the surface of the moon. And for our reading this morning, instead of having you stand as usual, I would ask you to remain seated and to simply close your eyes as you hear the words of the psalm and let your imaginations wander as you hear the images painted by the psalmist. So Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere morals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Let's pray. God, you are holy. Your majestic name fills the earth. And yet you are here with us this morning, and you hear our prayers. Thank you for the wonderful time of worship we have had together thus far. And would you speak through me this morning? May you be glorified in everything we do. We love you, Lord. Amen. It shouldn't be surprising based on the rest of the Bible, but it's definitely interesting that the psalmist declares that it's the children, even the infants, that God teaches to tell of God's strength. We often point to Jesus' teachings in the New Testament when we talk about a reversal of kingdom values of heaven, where the poor become rich and the weak become strong, and so on. But there's many examples in the Old Testament of this reversal of values as well. And here's one of them. In Psalm 8, we hear about how God's strength is best shown by the ones who are totally dependent upon others, even for the bare necessities of life. I think it's a neat parallel with the story of when Jesus enters Jerusalem, and it's the children that are singing, Hosanna in the highest, as they quote Psalm 118. But why is it that it's the children that are singing God's strength, telling that story? I'm sure there's several reasons why, and I think one of them is that children often have a trusting, innocent nature. They can thank God for the simplest things in life and can learn to trust and obey without being bogged down by the pressures we either put on ourselves or we let society put on us as we grow older. And this concept makes me think of two very different songs and I can't play clips of them this morning because of copyright issues. But the first one is by Ohio's own 21 Pilots called Stressed Out. Some of the lyrics go like this, and don't worry, I'm not going to try to sing them for you. Though this first one's hard to read without any musical cadence, so we'll see. It says, I, I was told when I got older all my fears would shrink, but now I'm insecure and I care what people think. 
used to play pretend, give each other different names. We would build a rocket ship, and then we'd fly it far away. Used to dream of outer space, but now they're laughing at my face, saying, wake up, you need to make money. Wish we could turn back time to the good old days when our mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. Um, Continuing on, um, my favorite line of the psalm says, out of student loans and treehouse homes, we all would take the ladder. And I think Psalm 8 is a reminder to all of us to look at the world, all of God's creation, with childlike wonder and amazement as we see God's nature and strength everywhere we look. We might wish that we could turn back time and go back to the good old days because we're stressed out. But when we see God's majestic name filling the earth, there's not an age limit on singing the theologically profound song sung by a tomato and a cucumber. Goes like God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than the monsters, or sorry, he's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. Oh, God is bigger than the boogeyman, and he's watching out for you and me. That chorus is basically the new international tomato version of verse two. (laughs) You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. Bob did a good job saying that. As we grow older, we hear more and more often phrases like, you aren't loved, you aren't good enough, you can't ever account to anything, amount to anything. We are but a speck of dust in the universe. Or about Stephen Hawking's quote, we are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star. But the Bible offers quite the contrasting perspective. With the brevity of life in mind, the psalmist writes, What are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. The creation story in Genesis 2 says that God made humanity in his own image and breathed life into them. It says that we have great worth because we carry, we bear the image of the creator. Bearing the image of God and calling ourselves Christians, which means bearing the name of Christ, that majestic name that fills our earth, is quite the privilege for we mere mortals, we specks of dust. We are crowned by the king of kings with glory and honor, but those crowns come with responsibility. For when God gave humanity dominion over the rest of creation, God made the risky choice to share his name, image, and likeness with us. And this is where Shakespeare's what's in a name philosophical discussion comes into play. Now stay with me because I understand that in this next couple minutes, um, it's very easy to say something that is truly not biblical. Um, So I'm going to stay very close to saying something that's deeply theological and true. Um, I just don't want to misspeak anything. So what's in a name? If we call a rose by any other name, yes, it smells just as sweet, even if we call it stinky and just rename the rose. The actual smell of it doesn't change. But if we call it stinky and rotten for long enough, then eventually people could come to believe that roses truly do smell horrible. And they won't even try to smell the roses for themselves because they've been taught that they are stinky for their whole lives. 
Now, when we bear the image of God and we caretake the rest of creation, God's name, God's reputation is bound up in the performance of our caretaking. Just like the rose not having a rotten smell because we call it stinky, God's actual loving and holy nature is not affected by our actions, and I want you to hear that. But God's reputation amongst others can absolutely be influenced by our actions. Hear what we believe to be true about God, what we believe to be true about humans, how we care for the rest of creation, they're all connected, and how we represent God matters. If our dominion over creation turns into an authoritative domination of everything else, then we are breaking the third commandment and are using God's name in vain as we portray that God's name, his majestic name that fills the earth, stands for something other than holy love. I know I'm jumping ahead to a later psalm, but Psalm 19 says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after night they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. They speak without a word, a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. If the skies and the rest of creation are going to proclaim the praises of God, then shouldn't we who bear the image and name of Christ fill the earth with his majestic name? I keep referencing the your majestic name fills the earth line because it was so important to the psalmist that it's actually written twice in our scripture this morning. Both the first line and the last line include, O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. I know it's not normal to read the scripture twice, but with it being a family Sunday and we've been talking about children praising God, I would like to try an exercise together this morning. I want to do a responsive reading through our psalm. And instead of splitting the responsive reading up simply between myself and you, I would like to divide us by ages. And I've asked Isabella Chappelle to come and help me with this. So, if you have not yet been in sixth grade, would you read the yellow lines with Isabel, and she's going to help lead you through that. If you have completed sixth grade, thank you, you can come up here. No matter how long ago it was that you were in sixth grade, would you follow me uh, with the white lines? Let's try this together. Oh, Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. Your great name fills the earth. All right, kids. Anyone who is not in sixth grade yet, would you read with her? Can we try this again? One, two, three. Your great name fills the earth. I heard a little bit. All right, let's go to the next line. We've got some more to go through. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. Your great name fills the earth. All right, that was better. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place. Your great name fills the earth. All right, kids, it should be memorized by now. 
What are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them? Your great name fills the earth. Heard some? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. Your great name fills the earth. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. Your great name fills the earth. The flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, everything that swims the ocean currents. Your great name fills the earth. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your great name fills the earth. Thank you. Great job. <laughs> Thank you for that. So God's nature is evident everywhere in creation. We see the peace of God in a rippling brook, the preciseness of God in the colorful designs of the smallest bugs, God's infiniteness in the ever-expanding galaxies, God's power in fiery volcanoes, God's never-changing nature as the sun rises and sets every day, God's wisdom as we look at the circle of life that continues to roll on, we see God's beauty on a clear, starry night when a light fog lays upon a field in a continuously surging waterfall in a mountain expanse or in the celebration of a newborn baby. All of creation speaks without a word, yet their message has gone throughout the earth. Nature calls out in a way that, reg that anyone, regardless of their language, can understand. It's saying, look at me. Can't you tell that I was created by someone, something higher? And yet this is where humans tend to falter. John Wesley said, love the creature as it leads to the creator. Creatures, creator, creation, sorry, creatures, creation, they all lead us to the creator but they themselves are not meant to be worshipped. When talking to a group of people who had not yet heard the story of Jesus, Paul writes in Romans 1, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God had made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious and ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Ever since its origin, Creation has revealed the mind of God. So humans tried to become wise with what they knew by creating religions to explain the supernatural forces and how the world came to be. But in this pursuit of wisdom, we lost our direction and we forgot where true wisdom lies. When I was a student at MVNU in college, I majored in intercultural studies. 
And one of the concepts I learned about in that major was called the high God phenomenon. It says that more than 90% of this world's folk religions acknowledge the existence of God. But more specifically, over two-thirds of them believe in a supreme being who lives in the heavens or the sky. Almost all of these religions understand this God to be the author and guardian of a moral code um, that includes prayers and sacrifices to the God or God's Um, That God teaches to obey the elders, to care for human life, to maintain sexual morality, to be honest and care for the sick. And this God often rewards the morally good while punishing the evil. It's often seen as far removed from humanity, so much so that many do not worship the high God directly, but instead they created a pantheon of gods. And this large amount of smaller gods is meant to help fill the gap between the highest God and we mere mortals. It's a kind of delegating of God's responsibilities. Instead of bothering the Almighty about a small weather issue, they created gods for rain, snow, sleep, etc. However, Christianity fills the gap between God and humanity in a beautifully unique way. We believe our almighty creator God sent his son Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This same Jesus God's son, majestic creator of the tallest mountains and the pristine beaches, king of kings and lord of lords, did not remain separated from us, but instead invites us to the table as friends, as co-workers in God's redemptive works. On the night that he would be betrayed, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, for this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This morning you are invited to come and receive the sacrament of the communion supper, which proclaims Jesus' life, sufferings, sacrificial death, resurrection, and the hope of his coming again. It is a means of grace in which Christ is present by the Spirit and is to be received in reverent appreciation and gratefulness for the work of Christ. Uh, Pastor Rick, Pastor Matt, and Pastor Miranda, would you come and help me um, with the elements this morning? Here at NPNAS, we celebrate what is called an open table. So all of those who are truly repentant 
forsaking their sins and believing in Christ alone for their salvation. If you are like that, you are invited to participate in the death and resurrection of Christ through the sacrament. Parents and guardians, we leave the decision on whether your children participate this morning in your hands. If they do receive communion, we ask that that you come with them and help them understand how much our God loves them. Everyone, you are always welcome to use the altars at any point in the service, and you are invited to partake in the elements when you receive them. There are two cups that you'll pick up at once. One has the juice, the other the bread. So we come to the table that we may be renewed in life and salvation and be made one by the Spirit. So we confess our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. So will you come and receive the Lord's Supper?